In 2014, the then Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Wallström launched the feminist foreign policy. A world's first, hailed by some as progressive and dismissed by others as provocative. Uh, the Secretary General welcomes the decision of the United States of America to re-engage with the UN Human Rights Council. Well, it's based on the notion that more women means more peace, that it's a matter of uh, involving and engaging women in peace processes, and that is good for both peace and, and security in, in every country. Sweden made global headlines in 2014 with the announcement that the nation would adopt a feminist foreign policy, a policy based on the conviction that security and peace can't be maintained when half of the world's population is excluded. In the years since, Canada, France, and Mexico have similarly followed suit. With pressure increasing on the United States, does the U.S. want or need a feminist foreign policy agenda? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly, and this week we're talking with Stephanie Foster, co-founder and partner at Smash Strategies and former senior advisor to the Ambassador-at-Large for Global Women's Issues at the State Department about what a feminist foreign policy is and why the U.S. may need a comprehensive agenda in order to compete and lead the future. This episode is moderated by Council CEO Megan Torrey. We know that uh, the concept of feminist foreign policy has been around for a while in that in 2014, the country of Sweden um, introduced its own feminist foreign policy. We know other countries have followed uh, Canada and Mexico, as well as France. And so there's increasing pressure to introduce a feminist foreign policy in the United States. But Stephanie, why don't you kick us off? What is feminist foreign policy? Well, I think that's really an important question to ask. And really, feminist foreign policy is about integrating gender equality into our foreign policy and national security policymaking. And before I kind of dive into what that means, I think it's important to say why we want to integrate gender equality into those very important institutions and policies. Uh, part of the reason is obviously gender equality is in and of itself uh, an important end. But a second reason has to do with what we've learned from research. And what we know, uh, recently there's a Department of Defense funded study that came out that says that when countries uh, are have more gender equality, higher levels of gender equality, they're less likely to go to war, or uh, when they are in conflict, less likely to really start the conflict. Similarly, we know that when countries have higher levels of political participation by women or women's personal uh, empowerment, uh, in their countries, those countries are much less likely uh, to be prone to conflict. And so we see that there's an, a connection between gender equality uh, and foreign policy uh, kind of outcomes that we all, I think, are in favor of, which is less conflict, uh, more peace, more ability to really take conflicts and resolve them uh, if they occur, but prevent them and then figure out how to recover from them. So there's really a research base that talks about the importance of gender equality in this sphere. But I think the important thing about feminist foreign policy is it's really about looking at the power imbalances that occur, have occurred over uh, many years, obviously, of, of our foreign policy, not just ours, but foreign policy around the world, and trying to rectify those by bringing in more diverse voices, 
by using tools like gender analysis to really look at the differential impact that policies have on men and women. And really critically, feminist foreign policy, I think, challenges assumptions that we've had over the years that what we call hard power, um, military might, is really the preeminent way to solve our conflicts. Obviously, military power and using the military when we need to is critical. But we also know that what we call soft power, which is diplomacy and development assistance, talking about trade, all of those things are also critical to really how we can put forward a policy and interact with the world in a way that really lifts everyone to, up together. I think the last thing I'll say is that one of the things that I think is really critical as we're talking about feminist foreign policy as well, is it also broadens how we think about security. Again, moving from this idea of military security or the military securing us, again, which is critically important when we need to, but also looking at human security and, the, and broadening the linkages to other issues which fall outside those traditional kind of defense development and diplomacy um, silos. And when people ask me what I mean, I always say there, I have two words for you, COVID-19, which is that we've learned in the last year, if we hadn't before, that issues like global health and food security and climate are not just issues that affect us within our borders, but they affect us globally and they affect our, our national security and our ability to really be uh, secure in the world and how we interact with everyone in, uh, around the world. Excellent. So let's talk about some of the main goals and um, objectives of a feminist foreign policy. What are some of the outcomes we could expect to see globally and domestically? Well, I think the key things are really this is about bringing in different voices, uh, different issues, and, and an analysis about how uh, how men and women and boys and girls are affected by policies differentially. And so it's, it's really uh, looking at all of those things. When we develop a policy, needing to look at the gender impact of, of such a policy, uh, again, whether that's a trade policy, whether that's a health policy, um, who has access, for example, uh, in terms of politics to certain kinds of uh, financing for uh, running for office or, you know, who in a trade uh, context has the ability to really access trade opportunities or in terms of foreign policy, who's at the peace table and what issues are being raised. So really that feminist foreign policy is about looking at how the impact is you know, differs and what we can do to ensure that there's an equitable impact of policy, that there are more diverse voices at the decision-making table, uh, whether that's women or young people, and really ensuring that as we are moving forward, that we're not just relying on kind of the way we've done things before. I think the data that many of us know about, but it's fair enough to put it on the table, really comes out of the peace and security space, which is that you know, when women are engaged in peace negotiations, the documents and agreements that come out are 35% more likely to last longer. And so uh, that's a really important point. But the counter to that is that there are very few women who tend to be negotiators and parties to peace talks. So we really need to elevate that. And I think that's a good point to say a lot of this work uh, and the clear focus on gender analysis and increasing not only the role of women, but consultations with women across the globe has come out of work that's gone on for a very long time. But a lot of it uh, is codified in the US 
in particularly the Women, Peace and Security Act of 2017, which is very focused on sort of the conflict and post-conflict kind of realms. But you can extrapolate from that, uh, which is what feminist foreign policy is really doing, to broaden again as we look at every issue, how we are really analyzing the differential impact and then making sure that our policymakers are taking that into account as they make decisions. Why is the intersection between social justice and racial equity in mm -hmm. feminist foreign policy? Yeah, and I think that's a really, obviously there's so much in the last year that we, we now are talking about in a very different way. And I think for me, um, you know, I think obviously there are many touch points between talking about feminism, feminist foreign policy, um, you know, and the role of gender, but also the role of ensuring that we're really looking across the board at how to ensure that we have a diverse set of voices and, and diverse set of people at the decision-making table. So I think that these issues, racial equality and gender justice intersect often. They're parallel sometimes. Um, I think that they're very complementary, And I think they're both about the idea that we need to make sure that everybody uh, who's impacted by a decision has, has the ability to participate or have their voice heard and that the decision-makers are diverse. So I think it's both about who's at the table making decisions, uh, kind of what that leads to policy-wise, and then also making sure that we're not just listening to each other, you know, the people who do this kind of work, that we're really, as people who staff policymakers, going out and really trying to bring those voices into the conversation, whether it's here in the U.S. or in terms of the impact of our policy abroad. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a second about operationalizing feminist foreign policy, because you've re re recently written a great piece on how to operationalize this. So what are some concrete steps that we can take or the U.S. could take uh, in introducing a feminist foreign policy? Yes, and I'll just say, just first by way of background, um, three of us co-authored uh, two pieces on feminist foreign policy. Uh, myself, Susan Markham, who's also a partner at Smash Strategies, and Sahana Dahampuri, who is at Our Secure Future, uh, which funded the, our work in this space. So, you know, what we did was really look at all the work that's being done and all the conversations that are being had about feminist foreign policy. And I think to me, the exciting thing is if you think about Sweden started this conversation in a really robust way in 2016, that's only five years ago. So there's really a lot going on uh, in this conversation in a lot of different ways that people are engaging. But what we really focused on in the paper uh, that just came out were very concrete steps that could be taken within the U.S. government. So really looking at in a very uh, granular way what can you know what steps can can be taken that may not get us all the way to a feminist foreign policy, but kind of get us there. And so we really looked at a. Uh, I'm going to just look at them here quickly. So seven summary recommendations, but I want to focus on a couple that I think are really important. The first is, of course, to diversify representation at the decision-making table. And I think I would say that I'm really excited about what's been going on with the appointments in the Biden administration, because the cabinet is obviously uh, gender equal. We're seeing a lot of very great appointments across the board. Uh, a lot of women and, and uh, non-white and, and younger and sort of very diverse uh, people filling these key positions. So I think it's really showing that commitment to bringing diverse voices to the table. Um, 
and we make a series of recommendations about that. But I think it's also understanding uh, that not every woman is a feminist and not every feminist is a woman, as we always say. So it's about also saying we need to not only have more, I'll say women, but all these diverse voices at the table, but also think about how to really put forward uh, feminist voices that are men uh, who can really also help us push the issues forward uh, within the organizations and institutions of foreign policy and national security. One of the other recommendations I wanna highlight, well, two others I really wanna highlight is prioritizing gender analysis and the collection of, of gender you know, related data. And that can be sex disaggregated data, race disaggregated, ethnic disaggregated, where that's relevant by age. Again, really to collect that data and that analysis and make sure it's presented to decision makers as part of the briefs that they get as part of the president's daily intelligence brief. You know, is there a gender dimension to a particular conflict? Will it have a differential impact on men and women? And maybe it won't, but I think that's worth always asking ourselves that question and being able to say to decision makers, this is something you should look at. And then the third thing I, I wanna talk about really goes to this issue of bringing in the voices of those who have been, you know, not part of the, of the conversation from, again, the places where we, uh, where we work, which is everywhere around the world, and, and thinking about ways that our embassies and USAID missions uh, can really institutionalize those conversations, whether it's through the way they structure meetings or who they think about inviting to meetings. Um, I mean, I can say I worked at the uh, embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, where I was a women in civil society officer. And, you know, and, and also when I worked at Maine State, I mean, a big question I always asked was like, who's in the meeting? Um, are there any women in the meeting? How many women are in the meeting? You know, and making sure that we're really not just talking to kind of the people we, we often go to sort of, not that there's anything wrong with those people, but broadening again, that conversation so that more people are part of, uh, of what our foreign policy decision makers here uh, when they go abroad and when they uh, read about what the other staff people have really taken into account. Do you, do you think feminist foreign policy's association with soft power has rendered, has some, uh, somewhat rendered it weak in the midst of hard power politics? Well, I see it as really complementary. So I, I, I don't, I mean, I think soft and hard power, as we know, um, are very complementary. I think as we're moving into this world uh, that's very, we now acknowledge is very interconnected, um, I think both of those things are critical. And so I don't think of soft power as weak. I think of it as a smart way for us to engage, you know, with people abroad. Um, and I think it needs to be, you know, those two need to be woven together. Um, so that we're always thinking about how do we get to a place where we don't need to use uh, military, we don't need to militarily intervene, if at all possible, um, and what, what are the steps before that? And I think a lot of this uh, discussion about institutionalizing gender analysis, institutionalizing the way that decisions get made so we take into account these kinds of issues, I think really can help us be at a point where we don't need to use um, as often, we don't need to engage in conflict um, around the world. So I, I don't see it as uh, really being weak. I, I will say, I think the one challenge that we've had, and I would just speak for myself on this in, in talking about feminist foreign policy is, you know, a lot of people can be put off by the term feminist. So, you know, is it a gender focused foreign policy? 
Uh, we, we spent a lot of time kind of going back and forth on that. But in the end, it, it really, feminist foreign policy kind of encapsulates the conversation globally. And so not using it seemed like really not a good idea either. And um, I think it's really important though to say what it means, which is that we want to ensure that gender equality is part of the uh, conversation because we know that that leads to societies that have less conflict, that are much more able to uh, resolve conflict, that aren't going to be uh, going to war sort of as their first uh, step in trying to resolve something. So I think that the term feminist foreign policy can be a bit of a challenge. Can you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of the United States using gender equality as a justification for military intervention? Uh, okay. Well, I, I mean, I think that's certainly an issue that people talk about, like, are, is gender equality being used to justify military action? And people would argue there are several cases where that has happened. I mean, I've served in Afghanistan. It's certainly a conversation. I don't think there's one right answer, and I because I don't think any sort of situation we face globally is the same. But I think it's always helpful to ask that question and to understand what are we doing in that it's sort of in that realm. Uh, gender analysis, though, I think is always critically important. And certainly, as we saw in Afghanistan, the fact that the Taliban was so draconian, not just in terms of their uh, the way that women were treated, but anyone who did not, who was not sort of in part of the their uh, worldview. I mean, I think that was a very important thing that brought to the world's attention what was happening there. And so I think it's a, it's a very important question to ask all the time. I don't think there's one, one easy answer. What are the greatest obstacles that you see in a furthering advancement of a feminist foreign policy in the United States? I would just say I reread my the paper that we wrote this morning. And as I was rereading it, I thought, you know, so many of the things that we talk about in the paper, whether it's increasing representation of women at high level decision making posts, whether it's uh, trying to you know, embed gender analysis more deeply and more broadly than, say, the Women, Peace and Security Act, uh, whether it's having a, a sort of a coordinating council on gender at the White House, a lot of those things I'm really excited to say are happening. Um, and uh, we see that the Biden administration in this, even this first few, not even month really, of uh, being in office is, is starting to move on a lot of those steps. So I think there's a lot of good news there. Um, I think some of the challenges really go to, I'll just speak for the State Department having worked there. These are very large bureaucracies with really lots of people. Um, and so kind of ensuring that there is enough uh, political will at every level is really important. Uh, ensuring that there's training at every level about what is gender analysis? How do we move forward on these issues? How do we create uh, ways to look at the programmatic work our development agencies are doing to make sure that they're really, um, again, taking the differential impact uh, into account. I mean, in a very real everyday way, that's really hard. I think a second challenge is ensuring there are enough resources to do this kind of work. Um, when I was in government, we kind of blithely said often, well, it won't cost more to do gender analysis or have a gender advisor and I think that was wrong. You know, you need to invest in things. You need to invest in, in having full-time gender advisors. You need to invest in their training. Um, you need to invest in building the institutional kind of structures. And that costs money. So I think that is certainly another thing that is, I think, difficult. The third thing I would say is sustained leadership. As I've said, I think President 
Biden and uh, has really signaled his leadership. I think uh, Secretary Blinken the same. Um, I think Secretary Austin with this, you know, sort of step down to look at what's going on at DOD um, is great. But, you know, leaders stay in office uh, a short period of time, relatively speaking. So really sort of embedding that leadership uh, in the in the institutions, I think, is a really big challenge because you want to make sure that after uh, that particular individual is no longer president or secretary or deputy secretary or USAID administrator, that that is embedded in the institution, um, which is why I think looking at, as we did, and many others have, and, you know, again, whether it's in the Women, Peace and Security Act or, or in our paper or other papers, very specific things that can be embedded uh, in the institutions, uh, in the legal frameworks uh, that we have, uh, so that we are getting this work kind of in the stream of things for a long period of time. In a number of countries around the world, there have been gender parity laws. How do we make sure that women are not only at the table, but are taken seriously and their perspectives are included and incorporated um, and that they are advocating for, for the issues that are important for them? I'm going to say a couple things on that, just kind of to reiterate. I mean, representation is really important. So I think you can't, if you can't see it, you can't be it. I mean, I think we all know that um, phrase, and I think there's so much to it when you look at the data about how younger women and men then see the roles that women can take on. You see a marked change when they're able to see someone who looks like them um, or sounds like them in a particular job. But that's certainly obviously not the end of the story. And I know that's what uh, the questioner is getting at. Um, that I think goes to a couple of things, making sure that it's we understand that not just women are integral to this conversation, that we need everybody to be part of it because we know again, that gender equality leads to better national security outcomes. Um, one thing that we said in our paper, and I just want to pull out a little bit because I think it's an interesting way to think about it, we recommended that congressional committees uh, ensure that the experts that they call are, uh, are gender balanced, that they're a gender balanced group of experts called uh, to non-governmental experts. Because when you call government witnesses, you get who you get and it's whoever's in that job. Uh, and then we went and looked at what was happening uh, with congressional committees. And and we did find that actually in the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the last Congress, about 30% of the witnesses were women, and that, which we actually thought was pretty good, not 50%, uh, but we're really talking to and encouraging um, that in our piece, that, which is an article that ran in The Hill. Uh, interestingly, we found out after we wrote the piece that then the House Foreign Affairs Committee and was looking at uh, some of the members, uh, particularly Representative Castro, how to actually embed, again, in the way that, that the committees work across Congress, a more, more parity of witnesses on, on a wide range of demographics, demographics, women, um, racial, sort of LGBT, if people, you know, this is all if people want to self-identify. And so I think what we need to do is not just look at who's sitting in that space, but what are the institutional mechanisms to make sure that they are listened to, right? Because they're sitting at the expert table, for example, or they're, you know, in the room where a decision is being made. I don't want to sound though, like I think there's one answer or this is a panacea. I mean, I am 
have been around long enough to know that women still are talked over. Women still are mansplained. We have all that. We have all that in foreign policy. And so it's not like this is a perfect world that will, you know, kind of come up from the ashes if these things all occur. But I think they give us the tools to keep pushing and to keep the awareness going and to really ask questions when that doesn't happen and ask why those those views and voices aren't being heard. Uh, so I think we need to see these this sort of moment is in time as giving us tools to really push forward on increasing both women's voices and feminist voices, knowing that those aren't always the same uh, and that making sure that those voices get taken into account as part of our decision-making processes, frankly, across every policy issue area, but talking about foreign policy and national security here. What does the world look like? If the U.S. adopts a feminist foreign policy, if countries around the world em embrace their policies through a gender lens, how, is the world's how does the world change? What does our global future look like? Well, I think we're, you know, we're five years into this discussion about feminist foreign policy. And I think we do see, as again, the studies have shown that gender equality does lead to better outcomes. Uh, obviously, the world is, you know, countries are in different places, uh, have different, you know, imperatives, have different uh, situations they face uh, wherever they're situated. So I think it's, we're not all kind of moving together at the same rate. But I think the interesting and important thing about this conversation is that you know, we are a global superpower still. Um, we have a very large footprint in the world and we can make a difference. And we do uh, every day. We need to make a difference in a positive way that I think really moves forward this idea that we need to have a robust conversation. We need to use gender analysis. We need to really look at the power dynamics and bring all of those to bear and present the people who we have, you know, making decisions uh, in our country with those kind of analyses. At the same time, I think that can also empower people both in the bureaucracies and in the countries uh, who are impacted by our decisions to ask more questions and to really say, why or why not isn't something happening? Why or why not didn't you take that into account? And how can we resolve this issue uh, in a way that gives everybody uh, something that they can hold on to in a positive way? So I think what I look forward to is having this conversation in even five more years or 10, because I think we'll be in a very different place in terms of more and more countries going down this path. And I think we'll see the difference. Um, and I look forward to that. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all of your work and being a, an advocate for women's issues all around the world and everything that you do. Thank you. Well, thank you. And again, thank you all for having me and Amanda and Megan. Thank you so much for making it happen. That was co-founder and partner at Smash Strategies, Stephanie Foster. Follow her on Twitter at Stephanie Foster. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For more content like this, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwac.org. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.